0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Welcome to the grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold of hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me.
1: Yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me stretch.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Poker Grid. I am with Ben Yu, a poker player who is a three-time World Series of Poker champion with over $7 million in live tournament earnings and 70 cashes at the WSOP, where he plays the large majority of his volume. He's won bracelets in the 2015 Limit Hold'em Championship in 2015, the 2017 Deuce to Seven Triple Draw, and most recently the 50K No Limit him, High Roller in 2018. He's also a good friend of mine, and I can certainly say I knew Ben back when. Ben Yu today has brought a hand to the grid for us with Jack 8 suited against Jonathan Little. And not to spoil it, but the Poker News Hand History description starts with, Jonathan Little did everything right. Ben you welcome to the Poker Grid. Hi, uh, there's something I've
1: never told you and I've held on to for several years, and uh, I'm prepared to confess it to you now.
0: Wow. Great way to start the pod. What is it?
1: Uh, A few years ago, we were talking about what version of PIO solver to buy. And you said the phrase to me, I want to learn to play with the grid in my head. And I just thought that was a really amazing phrase. And I would like to congratulate you on uh, turning that into a podcast.
0: Oh, thank you. Wow. Um, And I do remember that wonderful dinner where we talked about poker theory. I think it was some sushi restaurant at MGM. And since then you started playing in High Rollers. So whatever version of PyO you downloaded seemed to work out for you.
1: Yeah, I really like that phrase specifically because it reminds me of Keanu Reeves, you know, seeing all the lines in the matrix. I, I do think all the best players are able to pit know what they're supposed to do with every hand in their range in, in in the tough spots. You know, they don't just think about oh the hand they're dealt. They think about all the hands that they have to deal with. And that's why I really like that phrase. And I I try to use it occasionally from
0: time to time. Use the phrase or use the concept?
1: I obviously fail to play with the grid in my head, but I I like using that phrase.
0: Well, thank you very much. I mean, we're going to get more into like poker theory and 2018, 2019 later. But for now, let's go way back when.
1: This hand happens in at the end of the June 2010. uh, This is my third World Series of Poker. You know, this is way back in the day. And To set up some context for this hand, uh, my background is that this is my third year after finishing college and deciding to play poker full time. And I actually had just dug myself out of um, a horrible life position. This is the worst off I've ever been in life. Um, In January of that year, six months before this hand takes place, um, I was not only broke and had busted the $30,000 bankroll that I had won uh, in college grinding on the side, but I was in debt to my friends about $15,000 and I just felt like my life was in shambles. I pretty much had, you know, lost it, a bunch of bad decisions, losing at poker, uh, the stuff I was playing at, I wasn't winning at, and I was just in a horrible life position. Some examples for how poor my life was at this point, I felt really ashamed and shameful about owing my friends money, and that I would live very, very cheaply. I would, like, dig for change in our couch, to try to scrap together enough money to buy groceries. I would eat things like egg sandwiches and ramen because they were very cheap. If I was feeling particularly luxurious on a given day, I would add some bacon to my egg sandwich. And that you know, was the extent which I was willing to splurge. I pretty much just locked myself in my room and grinded. And when I wasn't grinding, I would just watch bad TV and play video games to escape from it all. I didn't exercise, I didn't wanna socialize or meet people at all. It was just a really sad time in my life for me. During the day, I just tried to escape from it all by you know, putting myself into media. And at night, I would lie down and be for bed. I would just think about how I fucked my whole life off and how bad of a situation I was in. I wasn't talking to my parents at this time and that period ended up going for about a year and a half where I wasn't talking to them because they didn't approve of what I was doing for a living. Um, at some point, at my lowest point, when I owed my friends the most, some of them sat down and talked to me about getting a job. They told me, you know, I don't play poker on the side, but, you know, I should at some point get serious. And I was pretty close to, you know, working for my friend's mini golf um, business or, you know, working at thinking about getting a job as a waiter somewhere. It was just all really, really a bad situation for me.
0: Well, you know, it's so interesting, this story, because I feel like it's one that's not told as much in poker. We hear a lot about the people who borrow money from friends and still live large and finally end up coming out of the hole anyway. And that always feels negative too, because somebody who owes their friends a lot of money living large is not really what you want to see. But you, on the other hand, are the other contrast, which is also like really bad, because if you're feeling really bad about yourself and you know, not going out, then your chances of rebuilding your role and being able to pay people back are also low. I mean, so not only is it kind of sad for you, but it's also like a sad phenomenon, isn't it? And how did you finally pull yourself out of that?
1: I definitely know what you're saying. I remember seeing the people who owed their friends money or were deep in makeup after I dug myself out of my situation. And I noticed that they handled the situation differently. They definitely were willing to live differently and live still willing to spend money the way that I didn't. But I also noticed that they didn't seem to be as unhappy. I mean, I don't know if I would say as unhappy, but they definitely didn't think of themselves as in such a deep hole as I thought. I hesitate to judge other people in their situation, not knowing what the exact situation is, but I did notice that I treated the situation differently, and I do wish that I had not held on to so much despair in that situation. Uh, The way I dug myself out, I just found some things I was winning at. Um, I ended up playing some satellites, mostly mixed game satellites that I was winning at. Um, There were some promotions where I was able to get some extra money out of it. And between January and June, I was just able to grind out a a fairly reasonable earn. And by June, I think I only owed my friends like $1,000 or $0. I was perfectly, had just like dug myself out of the hole and was able to play some events and gamble up a bit by the time World Series had started then.
0: And that brings us to this hand in the 2010 World Series of Poker. Tell us about the event and the point in the tournament when the hand took place. This event
1: is one of the last prelims of the World Series of Poker. And this was back in the day where it was a bunch of prelims and then there was the main event. So I believe this was actually the second or third to last event of the World Series. And during the World Series, I had a couple of caches. I think I broke a route even. So, you know, I was in an okay spot and I had reasonable ways to make money in the future. I wasn't as despairing as I was in the previous months. And this hand takes place at the final table. This is my first World Series of final table and obviously very excited for it. Um, We are currently four handed having just busted uh, probably the two best players at the final table, Mike Schneider and Brian Tate, who even at this time were already high stakes uh, regulars. And at this time, you could easily say that Mike was the best limit hold'em player in the world at this point. I don't know if this may have been before uh, Haas-TBF's reign and claim to that title, but, you know, at this point, this was my first World Series of Poker final table, and it was a very tough final table at that, for sure. The chip leader at the time is Brendan Taylor, who is one of my friends from Limit Hold'em and uh, my roommate, actually, at the time of the tournament, and he was playing pretty crazy because he knows what's to do with a chip lead, and it is in his style to play very aggressively, and he definitely knew how to use chip stack In that position
0: you're feeling intimidated by the stakes or are you just trained despite um being broke recently um to think about the strategy
1: i'm definitely nervous at you know being in this situation and knowing i'm up against a lot of great players playing for a lot of money
0: that's right it was almost two hundred thousand dollars for first and you had already locked up about 50k i assume you didn't have all your own action
1: i did not i probably had about a third of it i would guess
0: Okay, so definitely substantial. Now you can certainly eat bacon every day if you, no matter what happens (laughs) in this event, right?
1: Yes. I mean, it's just like poker. You're just not thinking about those things in the moment for the most part. Occasionally, you know, a stray thought may jump into your mind. I've always just found, you know, people ask you like if you're nervous. That isn't really how it works. You know, for the most part, I'm just focusing on like I have 50 big bets or 50 blinds. Uh, I have Jack. 10 suited, that's an open in this position, but jack nine suited would be a fold. And then occasionally a stray thought will jump into my mind. Oh man, it'd be really nice. This pot's gonna be a really big pot, I hope I win it. And then I go back to, okay, the pot is four bets, king seven, six flop, what do I do here? I think when people ask whether you are nervous in spots, the answer is always yes, but it, it doesn't work in the way that people just think you're overwhelmed by nervousness and these stray thoughts. They just jump in and out of your consciousness, or at least that's how it works for me.
0: So at this point in the tournament, you get into this crucial hand with Jonathan Little. Set it up for us.
1: So we're four-handed, and I am in the cutoff, which also happens to be undergun in this hand. Uh, the big blind is 40,000, so that means that the three short stacks, we all have seven, six to seven bets. Jonathan Little has a little bit more at about 10 bets. Um, I get dealt jack-eight suited in the cutoff, and I open-raise it. And I think this is my first mistake in the hand. Uh, This should just be a fold. In a cash game, this is definitely an open, but it is definitely towards the bottom of your range. It's possible you go down one pip further, Um, but it is in cash and winning chips here. We pretty much all have the two short stacks. We both have less than two hands' worth of bets and jonathan little has a little bit more than that and the chip leader has been attacking all at all spots so they are really going to put a lot of icm pressure on us
0: got it so the open was the first mistake of the hand but apparently not the last yes it folds uh the button
1: folds mcgowan folds on the button brendan the chip leader three bets in the small blind and then jonathan little four bets in the big blind um, it gets back to me, and this I'm not actually sure about. I think it's still just a very clear call. In Limit Hold'em, you just never fold in these spots in cash, uh, especially not a, a pretty connected hand like this that makes straights and flushes. Um, occasionally, you can argue for folding hands like A6 offsuit here um, that have really poor reverse implied odds. Uh, you would just never fold this hand. And I still think even with ICM here, you should be inclined to call this hand. You're just getting too good odds, and it's still them oldham and once I've chosen to play the hand I'm kind of committed to it at this point and that also helps to headline the mistake that I made of entering the pot in the first place
0: so both Taylor and you both called right so now it's three ways to the flop which came king of spades six of spades and ten of clubs oh uh, that's correct yeah and you had the jack eight of spades
1: yeah so I have a flush draw I didn't flop the actual flush you know I'm Committed to putting in more money now. I'm still going to brick the flush about two-thirds of the time. And it's going to be for almost all my chips. And this, again, just headlines. Probably a small mistake preflop, but a mistake nonetheless. And it's continued to compound here. So Brendan checks, Jonathan little bets. This flop really smacks his range. There aren't really many hands that I, I'm looking to get to fold, if any at all, here. Like, if I raise and bet down, maybe I get him to fold ace-queen off. At this point, I'm just looking to call and try to hit. And it's pretty unfortunate. I don't have much decision here. I don't have much agency to make some great play. I mean, maybe there are some other cards on the turn that can come. But this flop really smacks his range. And we're just going to make making the boring, boring play of calling down and trying to hit here.
0: All right. So that's what you did. And then the turn was an offsuit Jack.
1: Yeah. So I called Brendan folded. So we're just heads up to the turn now. Jonathan Little checks now. It is an offsuit jack, obviously. Um, at this point, I chose to bet, and I think I, this is another clear mistake. He's given me the option to act to save a bet here for the times that I miss. And betting here against a tight range, you know, with three broadway cards on it, just isn't doing very much. I think in the moment, I just thought like, I have a flush draw and a pair is a great hand to bet. But when I look at betting, it really doesn't accomplish very much. If he has any hands that I'm ahead of, maybe nines, ace-10, he doesn't really have, other than, ace-10 has a bunch of outs, but I don't think he has ace-10 very often. If he has nines, there just, there isn't much point for me to bet. I'm not likely to be able to two streets of value from him. And I ended up betting and he ended up check raising, which is kind of something I should have been able to see coming, like this, this board just smacks his range. And there are a lot of hands from his pre-flop range That are just way ahead of me. He has pretty much all the sets. He has ace queen. He can have aces, ace king. Though I don't know if he would check raise ace king or aces. Jonathan Little mostly plays Nolan Maholdem, I think, at this time, as far as I know. And when something is a, a secondary game, you usually don't make a fancy play like this. But, you know, it's definitely still, he's still definitely still capable of it and within his range to do so.
0: So after he puts in that check raise, you. What's going through your head and what do you end up doing?
1: Why did I bet? Why did I bet? He gave me a chance. Uh, This is for almost all my chips by the river. I think once he bets the river, I have a tiny bit left before I'm all in. You know, honestly, I think I'm kind of stunned in the moment and unable to think very clearly because all of this is happening. I would say this is one of those points where the pressure is a little bit on you and I'm not thinking my most clear about range and because if I had, I probably would have just checked the turn.
0: I think every poker player, no live and hold'em or limit hold'em, can certainly sympathize with that feeling that you want to bet, but then as soon as you get check raised, you realize that the bet was terrible.
1: My opinion on this is actually a, a piece of knowledge someone handed to me a long time ago. They said that every poker player, if you held a gun to their head and in a spot where they don't know what to do, they're either a spew monkey or a coward, and you just have to figure out which of the two they are, and it'll allow you to play perfectly against them. So I think people tend to default to passive
0: or aggressive by default, and you just kind of have to figure out which one that is. I think that's a great point. And unfortunately, you're only going to be able to test yourselves in those situations if you're getting super deep in a tournament, which by its nature doesn't happen that often. So even you... Not you personally, but even the listeners of this podcast might not necessarily know exactly which type they are because it requires you to get into that spot and have the cameras on you and have the pressure on you. And you can't always simulate that, right? There's no PIO settings for having your heart beating a million beats a minute and, you know, thinking about the money and the potential embarrassment and all that and the potential triumph. So uh, I think it's great if you do know your tendency because then you can in the heat of the moment, try to reverse it?
1: It is something I think you can train yourself in the offseason to change for sure. A lot of the times, you know, if you're playing against people who will go for it, you know, you can just say to yourself, even before the hand starts, don't fold the top of your range here. Don't fold anything exploitable. And the reverse, too. You know, if you think someone always has it, you know fold everything on the other hand.
0: Right. Or even if they almost, it's it's impossible for them to be bluffing at the right frequency, even if you can't be confident that they're never bluffing, which is something that Peter Jennings said on the podcast, which I thought was good. It wasn't that he thought people couldn't bluff a certain spot at all, but that he thought they couldn't bluff that spot enough. Anyway, coming back to this hand where you now have King Ten Six. Um, that's the flop with two spades you have the jack eight of spades the turn is a jack you get check raise and you end up calling right
1: yes um at some point i call it's just a pretty obvious call at this point i think another reason my bet is bad is also there's nothing for me to really bluff out all the hands that fold by the river are worse than mine if he has nines or ace ten suited he folds the river unimproved I, i don't think i'm getting queens to fold if he has ace-jack suited, I'm probably not getting that to fold either. Like, a bet just kind of plays, lets his range play perfectly against mine, and I get punished in this spot the way he punished me. So, yeah, I did call.
0: And by the way, for everybody um, who doesn't play any limit hold'em, um, this is a limit hand, not a no-limit hand, and that's why you called the turn.
1: Yeah, um, so this is the thing about limit hold'em. Like, I do still have a pair and a flush draw, like— even though I'm berating my own play pretty badly, like equity-wise, it's just not that awful. The problem in Limit is that you're just trying to eke out these points of value. You're just trying to save a bet here or, or get an extra value bet in. And to let your opponent punish you here for in the spot for a bet is just not good. Um, obviously, yes, this would be a lot worse in No Limit if I had bet the turn and not pot-controlled and got blown off all my equity and had to fold. That would have been a way more atrocious mistake. But, you know, in Limit... Other than times, you know, where you make an absurdly bad fold and are giving up a lot of the pot share. Here, you know, I'm just bleeding it. And it's not lighting money on fire, but it is still a mistake for sure.
0: More like slowly dying. Um, so anyway, what happened on the river?
1: On the river, I bink an offsuit eight for two pair. He bets, I call, and he turns over aces. And I've just never been so relieved in my life
0: ever wow i that must have felt amazing for you and terrible for Jonathan little
1: I think i didn't I think again, I'm just so overwhelmed by the situation I don't know what I'm feeling, and just panic relieved a lot of a few minutes of terror have been punctured by a few seconds of relief for me is probably the way I would phrase it for me, yeah probably feels awful in his spot for sure
0: yeah and i did think that poker news description that he did everything right was so funny but uh in the end of the tournament how did you how did you do and why was this a pivotal moment for you
1: so i when i called the river i was almost all in and jonathan little probably had 60 percent of his stack maybe 70 percent of stack in there i was able to ride this hand and a few other hands and finish second place um This is obviously just the most crucial hand of my poker career, and it is one that I slightly botched and got a little bit lucky in for sure. Uh, I got very lucky, actually. I remember, I think, calculating it later that, you know, my stack wins about $30,000 because of this hand. And I don't know this for any other poker tournament I've ever played in, but I do know that I cashed this tournament for $114,484. That's how, like, crucial this was to me at that point, like... I went from having like $0 to $27,000 to my name or something like that. Maybe it wasn't quite zero because I'd already cashed for 40 or whatever. But from the beginning of the tournament to the end of this tournament, I just had my Mike McDermott three stacks of high society on it, you know, partially because of this hand.
0: And that's why it's the most crucial um, hand of your career, because ultimately it ended up setting you up for a life in poker. If this hand had gone differently, maybe you would have gone and gotten a real job.
1: I think at this point that wasn't going to happen because I had already determined things that I had been winning at. And it certainly gave me a nice little bankroll to play with again. I remember one of my thoughts I remember jumping up and down in the celebration that night was that I had money to bet on football now. And so it certainly helped bankroll um, a lot of other ventures I had. I think the narrative that that I would have had to get a job or something like that just isn't accurate because I think I would have just continued grinding for sure. At that point I had... Figured out something that I was able to win at. But it did, it is just like obviously the highest stakes situation I've had and happened to run fortunately well in uh, at that moment, especially compared to my relative net worth.
0: It's so easy to overlook these moments in your career where you get super lucky because I think there's a human tendency to focus on the ones where. You get super unlucky or things didn't go your way. So tell us about why you chose this hand of all hands for the poker grid.
1: It is very easy to only focus on the times you get bad beat and want to complain. And every time the desire of wanting to complain over a bad beat rears its ugly head and wells up within me, there are a couple of things I think about that... You know, allow me to like have a better perspective and not complain about it. And one of them is focusing on situations like this where I ran really well, and just realizing that you know, like, sure, I may have gotten bad beat for a lot of money just now, but like I also had the flip side of the coin and was very fortunate in the spot. Um, I chose this hand also because it was a very pivotal moment for me, but also I did want to just pick a hand where I make some mistakes. Um, I think it's really easy and very natural and human to focus on situations where you do good and where others make mistakes. But that doesn't really help you in any way. It makes you—it makes your ego bigger. It's fun to gossip. But it does, it's not really productive or help you in any meaningful way. One of my philosophies for poker, for gaming, for life in general, is just to focus more on what you don't know, what mistakes you make, where you can be doing better and improving, and focus on what other people do know and what other people get right. And even when I think about when other people make a mistake, I think it's good to think about, like, in what situation would that mistake actually be good? Like, the very common one is, you know, back in the day, we said that fish limped all the time. If you, you were a losing player if you limped. But nowadays, look at if you look at tournament poker and short and medium stack sizes and even playing heads up, like, all the best players have added limping to their game in a lot of different spots. I think just taking that philosophy is just makes you a better person a better poker player it helps you in all areas of life but it's very very hard to not do it is so easy for my ego to just go oh man i I totally own that guy or that guy is a total fish i can't believe he made that play it's just so easy to do that and it's very very specifically easy to ignore your mistakes when the results turn out well for you so i specifically wanted to focus on you know a spot where i made a mistake
0: I've been friends with you for a long time, and I don't think you've ever told me a bad beat story, although I do think I have heard you talk about how people play badly. That said, your point that you shouldn't focus on the mistakes of other people, don't you need to pay attention to how other people are erring to know that you're in the right game and that you should be continuing to play that type of game or that type of stake?
1: Uh, specifically first, I would say that, um, a lot of my philosophical decisions are strictly for me. I'm only responsible and in control of myself, so I don't really worry about what other people are doing, um, and I mostly just want to focus on me, but I would actually agree with what your, the examples you brought up. For the most part, I only focus on my errors and not other people's, but there are a lot of legitimate reasons and exceptions. If people are cheating, if people are in a position of power and abusing it, it it makes a lot of sense to call them out. And I actually do think what you said was actually a very good example. Sometimes I do lament that it's very unfortunate in poker that sometimes it is important for you to talk shit about other people. If your friend is staking someone or doing business with someone who um, slow pays or otherwise commits unethical practices, it is very important for you to tell them that, you know, they're not doing good. If you know, your friend is taking someone who is not a winning poker player. It's probably it's important to tell them, you know, if you think they're going to steal from him or her, it's important to tell them, you know, I think these. I've had these experiences with these people. So there, there are definitely a lot of exceptions. And I do think it's unfortunate that it is important to tell your backers and people who you're selling action to. Yeah, this game is really soft. All these bunch of fish are in here. You, you need to get in, get into this pool.
0: It's really an interesting progression that you've had. And recently you started playing in high rollers, including the 50K I mentioned, where you won your third bracelet in 2018. Can you tell me a little bit about how you feel like your experience in limit hold'em gives you perhaps some insight into no limit hold'em at the highest level? Does it in any way? Or does it give you a leg up in certain types of study?
1: Maybe in some ways does. In some very basic ways, like a lot of limit hold'em... Is just having a good hand opening range. There aren't really any antes to win, so for the most part, in a tough game, you just play tight. And you know, pinpointing your hand ranges in all spots pre-flop is one of the most important decisions you make. So jumping into no-limit, you know, that was one of the first things I learned, and it is pretty important. But I do think there are a lot of differences after that, and it made it hard for me to uh, learn no-limit. You know, there were some heuristics and rules of thumb that I learned in Limit that when I started playing normal, it was just really hard to apply. Um, in Limit Hold'em, you never have to fold an open ender or a flush draw on the flop. And there are some situations that come, that happen in No Limit Hold'em where you just have to do that. And that was really hard for me to unlearn. So in Limit Hold'em, these, the hand I brought up where you have a pair and a flush draw, it's just reasonable to bet. And then if they check raise you, it's not a big deal because you just have to call another bet. They actually come up a lot. And in this specific situation, it was bad. But there are a lot of situations where if you have a pair in a flush draw, yeah, just go ahead and bet. Like Nothing really bad can happen to you. Usually, you're pushing an equity edge. But in No Limit, you can just get blown off your equity a lot. And pot controlling is important. And it was really hard for me to learn some of these concepts. So I do think for some reason, I don't know why, people love to say, make comparisons like, oh, I'm a lawyer, and these skills are transferable to Perker, and... Here are some of these comparisons. I don't know why. I I think that for the most part, things are different. And there are some things for me to transfer over, but there are also a lot of things that are very hard to transfer over as well.
0: Right. And you were referring back to the hand that you brought to the grid with the Jack 8 suited. And the reason that in this case, it wasn't good was the ICM implications and the fact that you were so short and almost out of the tournament with just 48K instead of the 114,844 that you want. Did I get that right? You know the number. But anyway. Yes, you,
1: you got it right. I, I, I'm glad someone else knows it besides me.
0: And I don't have it in front of my paper. I just like, I. you were just so enthusiastic in your description there. I had to memorize it too. So since you started playing at High Rollers, what types of leaks and mistakes are even more glaring to you for main events?
1: Mistakes you mean in, in main events that I see?
0: Yeah, because obviously when you have more experience playing at this super high level where people are so acquainted with the theory of the game? Does it kind of open your eyes to more types of mistakes and just all the study that you've had to do? Does it give you these open your eyes to things that you wouldn't have noticed as much in the past?
1: I think that's kind of tough because in these main events and against softer competition where people won't punish you, you really can justify doing whatever you want, especially on the aggressive side a lot. In a lot of these main events, and specifically the World Series of Poker main event, it is fine to just run some crazy bluffs and try to win, all, win every pot. Because you're not tied to your fundamentals that you are kind of required to in these high rollers, I don't know if I see mistakes specifically come from that, because the mistakes that you would make in these high rollers aren't necessarily mistakes now that people aren't calling you down or just punishing your aggression. A lot of the times you're required to be passive in these high rollers is, be, is because people will check raise you or will expect you or will squeeze through you. And in these main events, they just won't. So I'm not sure if the mistakes that I see are transferable. In fact, it's kind of the opposite because like a mistake that I see that I would say is pretty common in a large field main event is calling people who are never bluffing. In high rollers, almost everyone bluffs at some frequency. And a lot of people bluff at the right frequency or even more than they should. It isn't a mistake. It's actually a correct play. Like, they would be playing better if they were playing against world-class players and paying off.
0: What part of your game did you feel like you most had to work on when you started playing in bigger tournaments?
1: I really struggled with 3-betting light, especially... So I started playing No Limit Hold'em shortly after this hand in the series, you know. I wanted to play more tournaments, I had a little bankroll to myself, and I didn't feel compelled to just grind what I was already playing, and I could play some No Limit, and I wanted to No Limit. And this was during the X bet uh, metagame of No Limit Hold'em for sure. This is where, you know, people learned that like, hey, everyone's just folding to me, I can three-bet. And oh man, this, this three-better is picking on this open raiser, I can four-bet her for sure and you know this was just a very foreign concept to me again this is like something very different from limit hold limit hold you don't expect light literally intending to take the pot down immediately occasionally you get to barrel them off a of hand but this was in the phase where people weren't really calling three bets and you were three betting with bad hands was was the metagame it was all the rage at that point even after i got the theory down of you know you could three bet some hands with blockers you could three bet hands that you know, are slightly too bad to call. It was really tough for me to implement that. It was just not something that I wasn't comfortable with, you know, just inflating and playing these big pots was not something that I was used to. That was definitely a hump for me to get over.
0: And that was back in 2010. And then yes. more recently when you've been playing super high, was there anything that was hard for you to integrate? Finding bluffs
1: in situation where no one has bluffs is actually really fun. Like just coming up with spots that are, Difficult where you get to where like hey I don't really have any bluffs in this spot what hands should I turn into a bluff that's really interesting and something that was very challenging and because it involves blockers I think it kind of helps solve a lot of what the current no limit hold'em metagame looks like right now you know those two things combined really you know dive deep into what correct play looks like right now and also very fun play you know you get to run some very creative bluffs and hero calls because of that as well
0: the two concepts being blockers and what should i bluff with
1: and the implications of what should i bluff, bluff with mean you know just contemplating all parts of your range if you don't have any bluffs in this range what is the, usually that means it says something very interesting about the range of hands you have in this situation obviously that it is very strong but you have to consider your whole range and just not having bluffs is that that's not how poker works like it's true that human beings may not have any bluffs in a certain spot, but that's not how the way poker should work. Whenever I hear people say there are no bluffs in this spot, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how poker works. You you should always have some.
0: So how do you train yourself from looking at a solver and saying, whoa, like the solver has bluffs, but humans don't have bluffs here. This is really interesting. I'm going to study this and deepen my understanding of poker via the study that a lot of people don't get yet. How do you translate that to actually being able to recall it and utilize it quickly in game? Is it just by virtue of doing a lot of those sims or is there some other conscious effort that goes into it?
1: I mean, that specific example is really easy because when you find a bluff that is very good, that is printing money and also very fun, it is very easy to implement because, I mean, you're just so excited to do it. People for some reason seem to think that like, once you know the output of something, you are required to do it. Um, and people often cite that as an argument for not studying or, you know, not thinking that these things are important. I definitely said that at some point, I'm sure. Um, and whenever people say these things, I kind of just let let it go. Like, I'm not interested really in engaging, like, if people say these things on Twitter or whatever, like, they're not hurting anyone by believing that. By believing what? So, like, early on, someone told me about studying solver play, you know, Five or six years ago. And I remember saying myself, like, Oh, I'm just playing in these uh main events at this point. I don't need to learn that. And that was demonstratively false. I mean, I, I I find myself very embarrassed for thinking of that at that point and saying that so authoritatively to a person who had studied that kind of play a lot. So when someone says something like that now, like, I don't think they're hurting anyone. They're just if anything, they're hurting themselves. I I don't even know if they think they're hurting themselves. A lot of the the best players nowadays, you know, their play is very creative. They run a lot of crazy bluffs. They play very, pretty loose compared to most standards and aggressively. And that, that, that happens to be very interesting. So I don't personally like studying, but the content does actually just happen to be particularly interesting right now, you know. In general, I, don't, I prefer not to study unbalanced, but it's a little bit more interesting, you know, learning, like, some of these crazy bluffs that you get to run.
0: Can you tell us about the logistics for you of playing in high rollers, the process of selling action, was that difficult for you to kind of get into logistically or tell us the inside story about that?
1: I've never really understood the common outrage people have about selling a lot of your own, not, like not having a lot of your own action in these tournaments. I like playing in these events. They're fun. You get to interact with a lot of people and test yourself against the best. And at the same time, I've had discussions with people where just like there's a correct bet size to have in a given hand, there's a correct amount of action to have in a tournament for your bankroll to create the optimal amount of growth. And to play poker tournaments, you know, there aren't many things in life you need a lot of money for, but having the bankroll to play poker tournaments is one of those things. It is not a shameful thing to not have infinite money. And if you accept that as a premise, like it makes the most logical thing to do if you want to continue playing these tournaments is to sell a lot of your action. I mean, even if you aren't playing high rollers, even if you're just playing, you know, 10k main events, five diamond main event coming up, a lot of people are going to want to play that event. Like it's just reasonable to sell your action and have a responsible amount of yourself. I understand that's like really cool to have a degenerate story. You know, that's part of the reason I chose this hand that to come on the grid and tell. Like I understand that like People going broke stories are actually really fun and really interesting, even though that that's really interesting, like and a good story to hell That doesn't put bread on the table, and clearly, like situations like that made me feel really bad. And wanting to avoid being broke makes sense. So if we accept all these things, it's not shameful that not have infinite money or a lot of money. It is not shameful to want to be responsible. Like the logical conclusion to that is to sell a lot of your action. And I kind of don't understand like. You know, random, like, eggs on Twitter will say, like, ha, you have 10 or 15% of yourself. It seems like most people I've talked to have all who have ever been in this situation, they just accept that as, the, yeah, that's, like, normal. I'm not defensive about this at all. Like, actually, I guess I'm defensive about them saying that. I'm just, like, yeah, I'm responsible. Like, I think this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like, this is the optimal thing for me to be doing. I kind of just don't understand. But I see that the media and people think it's, like, some kind of sick burn that I don't have 100% of myself in a 50K tournament where, or I mean, even like 50% or whatever would be just way too much. I I just don't understand that. And sometimes I'm joking around with, you know, a fellow player and they get defensive about it. They seem to be operating on the same axis that, yeah, it's important to have a lot of your own action too. It's important to be gambling really big. And Again, I just really don't understand that. Having been in the situation I described before, being absurdly broke, doing poorly by my friends. I just really don't understand like what bad thing I'm doing here by selling a lot of action.
0: Well, I think the reason it comes up more now that you're playing these high rollers is that there's this uh, potential jealousy. And there's also this, and the reason that some people might feel shame who haven't thought about it methodically as you have is that when you play in those events, there must be a lot of very, very wealthy people. And by playing in them, you might just, have a lot of people assuming that everyone in them is extremely rich, is extremely wealthy, has lots and lots of money, and therefore you're kind of breaking that perception in people's minds. Like, okay, actually I don't. I have a lot. I'm doing well for myself. Otherwise I wouldn't be in this chair, but I'm still, you know, I've got this role. And that they think that's a way to make fun of you because they think that you are very excited to be amongst these people, to be kind of anointed as wealthy enough and rich and successful enough to do this. Whereas I'm sure somebody like you would say, well, actually the real achievement is being considered good enough that you can sell your own action and still play responsibly.
1: I think your explanation of jealousy is reasonable and correct, but I did not want to be the one to say it.
0: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's interesting though. Yeah. I I think there's, there's that other way to look at it. And that's what I think people have to say is that it's also an achievement to have managed to gain the respect to sell lots and lots of action because it means that people think you're good or that you're, you know, good at making people think you're good at least.
1: I think that's a good point for sure. I will say that one thing I do understand is that if you are constantly posting on social media about, oh yeah, won this tournament for 1.6 million, that is a little bit disingenuous and unrepresentative of what actually happened. Like the poker community has gotten to a point where like nobody really updates tournaments anymore. And especially I've noticed in the high roller community, like a lot of these people like don't even care about clout at all real or they care a lot about clout a lot less than like a lot of them don't even have social media. And if they do, like they never post about tournament results or even chip stack updates. It's one of the things that I've noticed since, you know, interacting with them.
0: Yeah, I have noticed less of that. And particularly from you, I mean Not long ago, you were tweeting, maybe five years ago or something, you were tweeting Phil Ivey's tweets at the poker table. You're really into Twitter. You were doing a lot more media stuff, commentary, interviews, and I noticed that in recent years, you're doing your sports betting. You've got gobs of hobbies outside poker. You're doing a lot of diverse activities in playing poker and studying poker, but you're less in the public eye, except, of course, for me right now, because we're good friends.
1: It is just very self-serving and... Only for me posting that, you know, I've done well in this. If it's not particularly funny or interesting to other people or, you know, if I'm at least on a stream or something, I like posting that because, you know, maybe people are interested in watching it and get something out of it. But just posting that I want a lot of money or, you know, I'm in a big spot. Like, this is one of the other things I, I think I think about a lot when the urge to complain about a bad beat comes up. It's just that, you know, for the most part, if, if I lose a lot of money in a poker tournament, you know, this is still the definition of a first world problem. There are people out there who are dying, who are starving, who are being sold into sex slavery. Like there are a lot of real problems out there and it just isn't the most perspective for me know, be posting, you know, brags about poker tournaments. So just ha- coming into that perspective makes me realize that, yeah, it's just not something I, I personally want to be doing.
0: Now, what you do want to be doing, as I understand, is dancing. You've got a lot of hobbies outside poker, but I didn't even realize how passionate you were about dancing. Tell me what that feels like for you.
1: I don't know what has happened to me, but in the last year today, so, I just realized that I love music more than I love gambling or gaming or even making money, and Especially the gaming part, I'm very confused by because growing up, I just loved playing games. You know, you couldn't kill me away from a TV or a board game. And now I just love dancing and music more. I mean, I've always loved those things, but I've just realized that I should make it more of a priority. I love going to festivals and raves and concerts a lot more. I'm willing to travel just for that now. Right now I'm skipping going to the Bahamas and playing some great poker tournaments, sitting on the beach, like a great experience, eating at some great restaurants like Cafe Athena. I mean, I'll skip that, but I'm seriously considering uh, flying to Reno. I've never been to Reno before, but just going to see an Illenium concert that I've already been to once this year. Um, I've been taking hip hop dance class. And I think right after this interview is over, I'm gonna go to the gym we have in my complex and just dance for a couple hours uh, and practice. Um, We actually just came off two weeks or 10 days or so of playing Poker Masters and I didn't dance for probably 10 or 11 days and I just felt, this feels awful. And it is just the most fun in my life currently right now and also just like a community I really enjoy. I think it's great that even though we're competing against each other for a lot of money, A lot of people in the community are actually still, you know, very, very nice and, you know, very classy, even when they lose. But despite that, you know, it's still a competitive environment where, you know, you still have very raw feelings if you get bad beat. And, you know, there just isn't that in a dance class at all. You know, people are just cheering each other on there. And I do like having that change of pace for sure.
0: That fact that you've got something that's not zero sum in your life and that you love, it's uh, really awesome. You took me to a concert in Vegas, actually, this year with a couple of friends. What was it called again? Above Beyond? Uh, above and Beyond. This was right after
1: ADC, and Above and Beyond was just playing a pool set at the Cows Pool
0: Club at Palms. It was amazing. I had a great time. You had to run back and forth to get, like, some pants because they wouldn't let you in with your bathing shorts. You, you yes, made that, it happen, though.
1: Nothing would make me miss that. I mean... This is during the World Series of Poker where I'm playing poker every day, you know, usually busting three tournaments in a day and sometimes more than that. And I'm so exhausted at that point. I pretty much never go out during this time. At most, you know, I'll just go eat with people and then just want to go home and crash, maybe veg in front of a, a stream or Netflix. And I typically don't want to go out, but for something that brings me so much happiness, I just ought to somehow find a lot of energy for and have a lot of fun at.
0: I think that it's just great to see you happy after a decade in the game and, you know, going from being broke to finding such great balance in poker. Jack 8 suited. Oh, and if you want to follow Ben Yu, he's at Ben Yu Poker on Twitter. And he doesn't update it very much, but hey, he might do a dance routine on it.
1: I try not to say much unless I have something funny or interesting to say, which is why I never tweet anymore. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to US Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever busts. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got Tyler.